for the sake of, of clarity, if I could, just read through that because that's, I think it's necessary for us to hear and to understand um, what we've set out as our vision this year. And in the years to come, we, the members of Good News Bible Church, seek to live a life of holiness in the context of community, to reach those around us through both intentional evangelism and practical discipleship, lovingly encouraging those in need and actively seeking God's direction for ministry through our facilities. It's kind of a long sentence. What does it all mean? Well, that's why we're breaking it down into five parts, uh, today being the second, and just helping us to understand what it is we're about. It's different from the mission. Mission of the church doesn't change. The mission of the church is stated above. You see those three symbols, knowing, walking, serving. We'll always do that. Might express it a bit differently, but we'll always do that. Vision is different. Okay, vision is, is a statement, more or less, that articulates the scope of carrying out the mission in this particular church at this particular time with a view to the future. That's what a vision statement is. Okay, uh, we, we benefit from some who went, us, went before us and had a vision. 125 years ago, a group of Norwegian Im- immigrants had a vision to build a church. That was their vision for that time, at that time. And here we benefit from that. 125 years from now, what will they say when they look back and see the vision that we have had and how we're living it out? And some of you might say, well, okay, I looked at that vision statement and I just want to say um, that doesn't quite describe what we're doing. Exactly. It describes where we want to go. This is what we're setting out in front of us. And that's why when I say it's an exciting time for us, you look at all the potential. I just, I, I see this congregation, I see what God has blessed us with, and, and it's exciting to see the potential that God has, where he has put us and what he has us to do. And we look forward to that. So we want to look at that today. Uh, the second part, last week, Pastor Ralph talked to us about our whole and our holiness, and he took the first part of that vision statement and stressed the need for personal holiness in our own lives. It's one of the reasons we come together today. We're going to look at the work in our worship and as we got together and talked about this, this series before we began it, we, we discovered that there is one thread that, that kind of goes all the way through this, and it will be repeated, and it's worth repeating, and that is worship. Because everything that we do, all that's in that statement has to do with worship. Often we think that when we hear, when we use the, the word worship, we think, oh yeah, Sunday morning when, we, when the, when the uh, music, musicians are up here and we're singing and we're worshiping. That's part of it. What worship is? A life of holiness. A lifestyle of evangelism and discipleship. Worship is reaching out to those in need around us and around the world. Worship is being good stewards of what God has blessed us with. All of that is worship. And so that's what's going to tie all of this together. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at evangelism and discipleship. As I thought about this, um, I thought about it this way. Have you ever noticed how uh, a popular movie or event or sports or even uh, social media somehow makes its way into our common language and expressions? Take, for instance, the Star Wars prequel and the uh, prequel trilogy. So many of those terms have made it into our term- terminology. May the force be with you. Or even um, lightsabers are, are common toys for children and some adults. 
and uh, we think about sports and think uh, how that has permeated our culture and say the whole nine yards or somebody hit a home run. To some extent, our culture is influenced by these over-the-top fictional stories and entertainment. And I can't help but think this is similar to the kind of influence that God intends Christians to have on the culture around us. Uh, But it's an influence for the good. It's one of eternal value and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, the world is in need of answers. We know that. Answers to multiple personal problems, social ills. I don't know if you've noticed, but media is packed with people somehow labeled experts who provide their version of solutions to the problems of this world. Advice columnists with their own failed marriages counsel desperate people seeking committed relationships. Politicians and journalists attempt to sway public opinion with their own version of solving response to natural disasters, to crime, to economic disparity. And even some well-respected religious leaders will speak out against injustices and breakdowns in society, and rightly so, but often do so so without ever addressing the deeper spiritual issues that are lacking. And if we're not careful, I think we as the church, believers in Jesus, members of his body, can be distracted as well, chasing down the symptoms while ignoring the disease when, in fact, Scripture teaches that we're to address both. We have an answer. Uh, We have the answer, in fact. It sounds foolishly simple, yet without it, mankind's attempt at creating a better world are for nothing. See, we've heard all of these crises, school shootings, civil war in the Middle East, personal conflicts in our own lives. We as Christians, we know there is hope. That hope is the hope of salvation and the infinite ability of God to transform lives. I know there are some today who are here who are in crisis, perhaps with events spiraling out of control for whatever reason, and the first important, all-important step is coming to a place of surrender before God and accepting Jesus as a personal Savior. Others here today, maybe we've become complacent, seeking only to enjoy the benefits of a Christian life without the discomfort of actually having to do anything. We may find some of this uh, work in our worship talk to be a bit uncomfortable, and it's good, because it can serve to lead us to a deep and lasting change for the better. So I know that in our short time together, what I want to do is take a look at, first, the story of Paul's conversion from Acts chapter 9. I'm going to draw a few lessons out of that, far too extensive to, to try to cover it all, but look at a few lessons from that passage, and then... What are we going to do with it? What does it mean for us when we talk about evangelism and discipleship? What does it mean for us personally? What does it mean for us corporately? See, there's the story in Scripture of this person who experienced transformation a rather dramatic way and then devoted his entire life to living out the last words of Jesus on the earth as you go, make disciples of all nations. So if you have your Bible and open to Acts chapter 9, I want to go through that uh, narrative that we've already read and look at the life of Saul at the beginning. Luke records it and says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This Saul we first were introduced to 
in, the first ch- in uh, chapter 8, the first verse of chapter 8. This was the Saul who was sitting by and watching Stephen be stoned, and, everybody, and he held everyone's coats. It was this Saul that Luke is writing about. So here's this Saul um, breathing out threats and, and arresting people. And Luke introduces us to him again and saying, here he is, went to the high priest and asks for some arrest warrants. Letters of recommendation. Now, you understand the culture, this, the context at this time. The, um, again, the Jewish leaders, having just come off of this Jesus person who claimed to be the Messiah, we put him on the cross, thought we were done with it, and now he, he disappeared. He's not in the tomb. His followers say he, raised him to, he came back to life. And we got all these people of the way who are still following him. What are we going to do? And so Saul was a part of that. And they considered this, this uh, sect or whatever you want to call it, cult, to be very dangerous. Now, see, the Greeks were more philosophers. They were like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. So the Jews weren't too put off by them. And the Romans, they were just the occupiers. As long as nobody rioted, we were okay there. But these Christian people, those were the dangerous ones. We've got to stop them. Saul was at the front of that. Violently so, breathing out murderous threats, uh, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus. So he went and got those letters and headed to Damascus. That's about a six-day walk. And as he was nearing Damascus, God decided that was the point at which he was going to say, stop. And like I said, he did it in a very dramatic way. About noon. We know from other accounts. See, um, Luke relates this in in chapter 9, but then he also relates it again in in chapter 22 and in 26. So this this, uh, narrative is actually uh, spelled out in three different places in the book of Acts. So here it was about noon, and a light brighter than the sun. Okay, this was to really blown everyone away. A light brighter than the sun shone down on them. The people with them, they they were just astonished. They, They couldn't say anything. And here they were, they, they kind of fell back and it focused on Saul. He heard a voice. The other people heard voice. They heard noise. They couldn't tell what it was saying. Saul heard a voice. Now we know from this then that it wasn't simply a vision, a dream someone might have when they're off by themselves. This was actually Jesus appearing to Saul. And he said, Saul, Saul, he repeated it twice. Why are you persecuting me? See, it's important to note that. Okay, Jesus was already, he was ascended back to heaven. But he's asking, why are you persecuting me? You know why that is? Because the church is the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. When we're persecuted, he is as well. And so that's why he said, why are you persecuting me? In another passage it says, it's impossible, it says, it's kind of hard to understand, but why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, why are you kicking against the the thorns? This is useless. He's appealing to Saul's logic. You're not going to win. So he said, why are you doing this? And then he said, get up, go into the city. So after the light um, had gone away and the noise had stopped and everyone's heartbeat returned a bit toward normal, they got up and <laughs> here was Saul, couldn't see a thing. He's blind. And the guys are with him, oh my goodness. Okay, come on, Saul. Take him by the hand and lead him the rest of the way into Damascus. And went there to uh, uh, the house of Judas on Straight Street. Meanwhile, in Damascus, there was a Jew who was a believer, a follower of the way. His name was Ananias. 
Now, God appeared to him in a vision and said, I've got a job for you. Uh, and Ananias says, here I am, Lord, just following whatever it is that you want to do. And so the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, Straight Street. Okay, get that. And the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. Now, Ananias was good up to this point. Okay, yeah, straight street, okay. House of Judas, okay. Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus? Okay, you know what you're saying? So he kind of, you see this, is, he's not arguing. Okay, but this is kind of a clarification. Do we have the right person here? Uh, Ananias says in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has the authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. See, word had already gotten out. Ananias knew about this. He knew what Saul was up to, why Saul was coming to Damascus. And here God appears to him in a vision and says, I want you to go to Saul. Now, wait a minute, is this supposed to be the other way around? I'm supposed to be running from Saul? No, I want you to go to Saul. So after that confirmation, and, Jesus, and uh, the Lord says exactly why, he says, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. He's speaking of his commissioning. I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So, verse 17, Ananias departed, got up, and entered the house. I get it. Again, I think, I think probably the heart rate, rate was increased slightly as he goes into the house. Is this the trap? Are they going to lock me up as soon as I step in? And there's Saul, sightless. Ananias, in faith and boldness, walks up to him, puts his hands on his shoulders. And in verse 18, um, verse 17 says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. What a miracle. What a miracle con- conversion. And soon after that, he looked, scanned down, looked through the verses following. He began to teach right away in the synagogue. Here goes Saul. Waste no time. Well, a few lessons. wish we could spend more time looking at that narrative, but a few lessons here. First, looking at both Saul's, uh, Saul's conversion experience and then also as an Ananias, as an obedient disciple. First, a conversion experience. I want to make just a few notes. As, as I started to make a list of, of some observations here, we got way too long, so I want to highlight some of them. You're going to notice some more. That's good. Uh, but let me highlight a few. First, a conversion experience can be considered miraculous in the sense that it is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, usually not as dramatic as Saul. Okay? But every one of us who have come to faith in Christ has had that experience. And in one way or another, every one of our stories is different. Mine, as a young boy, my parents faithfully taught me the word. I began to understand it, and I came to them one day and said, I get it. Now, however a preschooler says that, I'm sure I didn't say those words. But, but I get it. I understand that Jesus died for me, and I need to, to be saved, and I need to be with him in heaven. That's, how, that's my story as, as how I came to faith in Christ, I remember clear as anything a few years later, wondering, you ever get that? Those of you that have come to know Christ and saying, did, I, did that really happen? And I prayed for assurance. God, I need to know. 
I distinctly could tell you exactly the spot I was standing in and exactly what it looked like and everything about it because God assured me of that salvation experience. Every one of us has stories, some dramatic, some not so. But either way, either way, it's a work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts drawing us to Him and us responding. For Saul, like I said, wow. We would hope that none of us would have to go to that extent. Uh, But God does do that. Sometimes he chooses those dramatic ways, sometimes not so much. Another uh, point about this or lesson we can see is that this was God's initiative. He draws people to himself. Okay, sometimes we, we use the expression, you know, I found Jesus. I understand what we're trying to say there, but quite frankly, no, 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 no. He found us. Saul was not looking for Jesus. He was doing quite the opposite. Jesus found him. And that's how we come to faith in Christ. He finds us. He takes the initiative. He's the one that stirs within us and says, there is a God and you need to be saved. However words he, whatever words he uses. Third, uh, it can often be at a point of crisis. Now, this doesn't, wasn't necessarily a point of crisis in Saul's life. Um, it, it was in the, in the believers that he was chasing down and so forth. But often... God will use a point of crisis in one of our lives to bring us to him. We suddenly realize, you know what, I can't handle this. And and, and at that point we say, I I need help. Good. Because then we realize that there is something much bigger than us. Someone who can help us. Or sometimes we realize there is hope when it all seemed hopeless. So sometimes that's that's another lesson or principle. God will use a point of crisis in our lives. Third, uh, another lesson or, or note that we can make here, it's not so much, okay, this is Saul, an individual, but it wasn't individualistic. In other words, God used other people to bring Saul to himself. He didn't go off and hide somewhere and do it by himself. We need other people. Okay, you, you saw where Ananias came in. God, used, God put these people in, in place around Saul's life. He does the same thing with us. Because we often we look at those other people and we, oh my goodness, I can't, you know, what, what, I just want to go off and be saved and be myself and not have to deal with them. Well, that's not the case. That's not how God does it. He chooses people like Ananias and later on you're going to see Barnabas. Barnabas is the one that came in and said, and said to, to all the Jewish people or, or the, the Christian people who were afraid of Saul and said, no, 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 this guy's, this, he's legit. Uh, I'll vouch for him. Uh, and we need those. We need those individuals. Uh, to come alongside of us. So even though it is a personal decision on our part, God uses other people. A a fourth one. Coming to Christ is coming to a point of total surrender. Now this one, I I wish I could say, this is easy, y'all. You know, all you have to do is boom, 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 and you're you're good to go. Surrender's hard. (laughs) Surrender is hard. See, what we like to think of as coming to faith in Christ is coming to a point where uh, we add something to our bank account, open up an IRA, um, or put something additional on a resume, another page, or, or add to our portfolio. That's not salvation. Salvation is emptying out the bank account, surrendering completely to God and saying, I got nothing, fill it. That's salvation. It's not adding something onto what you already have. That's works. And I think too many times we as Christians think, you know, I, I just, let's see, I got this in my life, I got this. Oh, yeah, I'll add the church thing in for good measure. No, 
I'm sorry. And I, I, one fear I have is that there are so-called believers walking around believing that. Really? That's a scary thought. It is surrender. And that's what Saul, he had nothing left. Couldn't see anything. Fasted for three days. And when he came to be one of those people of the way, there went all of his credentials out the window. You were a Pharisee, Saul. Now, you're one of those. That's where we need to be before God. For those of us who truly come to faith in God, realizing, and again, like I said, I wish I could say this is easy and it just happens once. Oh, no, no, no. This is a process. I really believe. This is a process. Coming to that point, surrendering, then realizing how significant that is in our lives. And I think really, quite frankly, a conversion experience, another point or another lesson from this, it begins with a prior understanding that there is a God. Too often we overlook that. Saul understood that because he had been schooled in that. He was a student. He was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He knew there was a God. He knew the Old Testament better than you and I do. So he already had come to that point of understanding there is a God, and that is the same for us. Uh, We can't neglect the fact that there's an almighty God of the universe who was, is, and always will be. And having that understanding is the basis for coming to faith in Christ. And seventh, I think this is seventh. I, I told you it was a long list. You're gonna, there's some more in there, but the last one here. Um, this conversion experience, it results in a transformed life, in changed behavior. Okay, Saul didn't go and say, okay, oh good, I got my sight back. Okay, now what, here are my letters. Here are my letters. And go back into the, the synagogue and start arresting Christians. He didn't do that. No, there was a transformed life. It really changed, and we as believers, whether we're a preschooler or an adult, high schooler, whatever, at whatever point we come to Christ, that's where the change takes place. It's transformed. And believe me, I know that some people think, you know, and, and you may have conversations with, with, with friends like this. They're like, you know, you don't understand. I'm really messed up. Okay? There is no way that God could possibly want me or be willing to save me. Uh, Well, look at Saul. You want to see somebody who's messed up? He was out there murdering Christians. How much more messed up can you get? God will take any one of us. Sometimes we think that. It's like, I'm too far away. Never, 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 never too far away from God. And some of our friends and some of the people you pray for, sometimes we we think that it's like, yeah, I pray for them, but... Yeah, <laughs> don't think that. Look at this. Look, who's, look who God chose, Saul. God can do that. He can make that change in a person's life. Well, moving on from, we're talking about the conversion experience. Let's look at Ananias and look at a few lessons there. First, this disciple, Ananias, he was listening and available In verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. And some of you us say, man, I wish God would speak that clearly to me. Sometimes sometimes God chooses to do that. But I think, you know what? Often it's more of a prompting in our heart. And I think often the reason we don't hear that is because there's so much other stuff crowding into our lives. Good stuff. But there are times we have to just simply come apart and say, okay, I'm here to listen. 
Have you ever had that experience? I, I have on, on more than one occasion where I go in with my agenda, whether it be I be out somewhere or, or uh, in my personal devotional time, and, and I've got to cover this and this and this, and I've got to pray for this list of people. And, and, and all of a sudden God says, stop. I want you just to listen to me. And you're like, how do we do that? And there's so many, other, so many other things crowding in. And sometimes we just have to remove that stuff. You know what? Leave the phone. Put the phone somewhere else. Put, turn the computer off. Uh, turn the TV off just, just, and, and get away by ourselves so that we can listen. A disciple is listening and available. Maybe God at some times has been, has been prompting us and there's so much other stuff going on, we never heard him. And it's not a case that he doesn't talk to us or, or speak to us or communicate with us. It's not like a... I, I mean, he's our Heavenly Father, for goodness sakes. He wants to talk to us. The communication is not just one way. Listen for him. This is what Ananias was doing. He was listening. And he was available. Secondly, he was obedient. You look in all, all those verses, um, uh, 11 through 17 there, and then, la- and then lands on, on verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He was obedient. When God let him know very clearly what he wanted him to do, this disciple was obedient. I think a couple of things here. He didn't rationalize. We are good at that. Okay? See, see, if I'm Ananias and I'm a disciple and I have an assistant, you know what, God? I will send my assistant here and... Because <laughs> I don't know what's going to go on over there. So I'll send this person along. It's just the same as obeying you because I'm going to send him to go and lay hands on Saul, right? That's rationalizing. We do that to try to get out of whatever it is that God wants us to do, um, I'll think of a different way of accomplishing it, and in the end it's okay because the same, you know, it was accomplished in the end, right? No. God wants us very specifically to step out in faith and obey Him. Don't rationalize on that when we hear His voice. Secondly, um, regarding this obedience, is trust. I put myself in any nice in any nice shoes or sandals or whatever they were. I don't know about you, but that would have been tough. Because I, I think he just said those few sentences there that, that Luke records that we know of. I think my conversation might have been a bit longer. Are you sure about this? Are you sure? Let's get the address. Could you send me the address again? I want to Google it, make sure that I'm in the right place. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, are you sure about that? And debating back and forth. No, no, no. See, Ananias trusted God. And that's where our weakness often comes. They're like, yeah, I trust God up to a certain point until you ask me to do those difficult things. You know what it is? Get this. You can't trust someone you don't know. So, it follows that the deeper we know our Heavenly Father, the more we're going to trust Him. Wow. As we get to know him, as we develop our understanding of who he is and his character, as we read from scripture, as we pray, as we fellowship with other believers, we begin to know this God. And so that when he does call us to step out and do something that we think is just absolutely ridiculous, I'll do it because I trust him. I don't know how, I don't know why, but I'll do it because I trust him. Not only that, a disciple is bold. And that's a great boldness for Ananias to just step out and do that. 
Uh, we've already mentioned it, but I mean, and I'm talking about being arrogant or purposefully reckless or ridiculous, but being bold if God calls us to do it, to go ahead and do it. And also, I've noticed this, this wasn't Ananias, but if you look down in uh, verses 20 through 25, a disciple is transformed. Saul, you, you look at the, the ver- first couple verses, uh, verses 1 and 2, Saul, Saul breathing out threats and murder, um, asked for letter arrest warrants to go to Damascus, and then down in 25, 20, uh, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. What a transformation. A, a disciple is being transformed. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So what does this mean for us today? What does this have to do with our vision statement? Well, disciples are believers who are in their process of transformation. That first all-important step occurs at salvation. So necessary. Uh, Crossing the point from darkness into the light. And then the steps continue throughout a lifetime. See, what it is, it isn't just doing the job of evangelism and then clocking out and then doing the job of discipleship and clocking out. It's a lifestyle of worship that includes evangelism and discipleship. That's what it is. When we say, try to, too often we try to segment it out and analyze and outline everything else, but it's basically a lifestyle of worship and it includes evangelism and discipleship. Matthew 20, 19 and 20 that was read says, as you go, make disciples. Quite frankly, worship can't happen without evangelism, evangelism and discipleship being a part of it. We can't just take that out and say, I'm, I'm off duty, I'm do that right now. No, no, no. Always on duty, always worshiping. Well, in a very practical sense, because that's what we need. We need to say, so what? How do, what do we do with this? First, I'm going to look at it on a personal level. We as evangelists and disciplers... And then also on a corporate level, Good News Bible Church in evangelism and discipleship. A prereq. This is something that we talked about last week. That of being in our own lives, holy, personally holy before God. That's a prereq. Um, not that we're going to be say, well, I can't do evangelism and discipleship until I'm perfect. That's a cop-out. Don't try that. Don't do it. Okay? But also in the sense of Let's say you're at work and you want to share your faith and you look around at the people around you and, and you just know how that will go down. You're a Christian? Yeah, right. We don't want to be a hypocrite either. So in our own lives, throughout all of this, part of our worship, there needs to be a sense of, am I pursuing holiness? As Pastor Ralph talked about last week. That's a prereq. Then, in my own life, evangelism means always being available to share my faith, no matter what context God has me in. Some of us are around unbelievers all day long. That's where God has placed us. Others, not so much. Uh, either way, praying daily for our interaction with unbelievers. Because we never know. You know, you don't know how God has prepared hearts. Um, but always being available for Him to use. In fact, 
when we consider the how part, prayer is the first step. I think on the front, yes, on the front of your bulletin, John 4, 35b. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And it says, pray the Lord of the harvest. That's what we're to do. Pray. Any of our evangelism, evangelism must begin with prayer. Often, um, it's praying just simply for God to prepare the soil. You know the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13, where the sower just simply goes out and spread the, spreads the seed. Some of it falls on the path. Birds come along, pick it up. Some of it falls on rocky soil and it sprouts and then withers. Some of it falls among the thorns and it's choked out, but some of it falls on good soil. That's what we do when we evangelize. We just simply communicate the word of God. It's not up to us to make it grow. We can just be faithful in spreading the word and spreading the gospel through our life and through our word. Leave it up to God then. Sometimes we, we concentrate on one and think, you know, oh, I, I spread some seed there and got snatched away. I'll spread some more. No, 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 no. Just spread the seed and leave the results up to God. He'll, and, and then pray. This is, for, this is what we pray for. Pray for God to prepare the soil so that when the seed is sown, it is received well. We also need to be very clear on the message we share. Uh, evangelism is both our life and our word. I had someone come once and, and tell me, you know what, I'm going to be in this situation here, but I really am not comfortable actually sharing my faith and expressing what the gospel is. I'd rather they just see me by what I do. Sorry, that doesn't work. It has to be both and. There has to be a case of us living out our Christian lives and being willing and available when it's appropriate be able to say, let me tell you, why I am this way. Let me tell you why I'm not available on Sunday. Let me tell you why it is uh, that I stop and pray. We need to be available for that, realizing that it's, um, it's both our life and our word. Some of you might be thinking, you know what, I, I'd like to do that, but <laughs> whenever I sit down across from somebody who's not a believer, I don't know what to say. And that's, that's okay. That's, that's kind of an uncertainty, but let me give you some verses. Okay? And believe me, this is not... I'm, we're not looking for a method. One thing we did not want to communicate is, here's how you do evangelism and create a bunch of little robots that go out there and, and do it all the same way. That's not the case. No, this has to be personalized. This has to be you. But here is one premise that must be followed, and that is, Scripture is the basis of what we're sharing. It's not just simply, I know of a new life in Christ, and, and it's like this and this. No, no, no. What does Scripture say about salvation? So if you... Um, if you have a pencil and you want to jot down these verses, I'm only giving you six. Okay, there are a number more, but it's a caution of not having enough or, not, or having too many, so I'm going to give you six. When you sit across from somebody and they say, what, is, what are you talking about? First, it's based on the assumption that there is a God. Okay, first we have to go with that assumption. There is a God and he's almighty and holy. Then the first verse, Romans 3.23. Some of you are very familiar with this. I know that. But just write these down. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. All. Stress that. All. Because somebody will look at you and say, you too? Yeah. All have sinned and come short of God's glory. Secondly, because of that, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, and that eternal separation means that there's no way that I can make it to God. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The third verse uh, I put these two together, Rome, uh, John 3.16 and Romans 
John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, it would be good if you memorized these. Just a, just a suggestion. And then Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you've got uh, Romans 3.23, 6, Romans 6.23, John 3.16, Romans 5.8. And then John 1.12, what's our role in this? What do we do? John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That's from John 1.12. And then Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now again, I'm just trying to be very practical. This is something that you can follow, those, those verses. But personalize it. Make it your story. Make it you. Uh, some of, I think you may have uh, remember in the past um, we've used the bridge illustration uh, where there's a huge chasm caused by God's holiness and my sin and the only way across is through Jesus. Perhaps you can use that. I know that uh, especially here in America there's a there's a sometimes we feel like we're up against uh, a pluralistic society and we are and it can be challenging as soon as you mention or say something about um, an evangelical Christian, oh, the eyes roll and you're one of those. I remember uh, last fall uh, sitting across from an older gentleman at a uh, homeless shelter on the north side and um, engaging him in conversation. Uh, as we shared our meal together, the topic came up of what I did and why I was there. And immediately, as soon as he found out I was one of those Christians, the wall went up and the conversation ended. I was like, but the Lord knows that. But just to illustrate, it's hard. I know it's hard. And especially in this society, it can be very challenging. Uh, and so much so that especially we need to be living out our Christian faith. Not just saying it, but living it out. Another, just one more thing about the um, um, evangelism. Sometimes one of the most powerful ways of expressing a conversion experience is sharing your own. You have a story. How did God bring you to this point? What did God do in your life to transform you? Sharing that with someone, how are they going to argue with that? This is what happened to me. Think about the, the, uh, the man born blind in John chapter 9. Remember, he was, he was called to the... After Jesus healed him, put mud on his eyes, and, and Jesus healed him, he was called before the Pharisees and said, tell us what happened. And he says, I, I was blind. This man came along, put mud on my eyes, I washed it off, now I can see. And they drilled him, pulled his parents in and talked to them. And finally the man says, I don't know what else to tell you. This is my testimony. This is what happened. How are you going to argue with it? I was blind from birth. This man came along, put mud on my eyes, and now I can see. You have a testimony. Who can argue with that? Who can argue with the transformation that took place in your life? And that sometimes is one of the most powerful ways to be able to share our faith with people. Well, corporately, we, here's a church Understand, first of all, it begins with each of us as individuals being completely sold out, passionate for God, and coming together to encourage others. Maybe this church could benefit from a more formalized evangelism program. Maybe our church could have special outreaches. Each one of us should be inviting any believers around us to church or to Mosaic or other events. And in a few months, we'll be re-signing our commitment cards at the congregational meeting indicating that we intend to continue as members to give generously and listing the names of unbelievers that we know of who we can be praying for. Something we can do practically 
as a church. And although church programming brings needed structure to many of our spiritual exercises, including evangelism, we need to be careful. It's not just restricted to that. It's not just a program. And it's not just sitting around and talking about it and strategizing. It's actually doing it. I recall um, a story that was related to me, and I wasn't there for the occasion, but I've heard this a number of times. Um, One of the professors that I had at Moody, he was more of a disciple or a mentor for me. Um, He was an older professor, and in the words of another prof there, he marched to the beat of a different drummer. Um, He was slow-moving, soft-spoken, and a very unique character. And he taught, uh, some of the classes he taught were on personal evangelism. And um, at one point he was asked to speak in chapel. And chapel typically is, runs about 30 or 40 minutes to the whole student body. And so this individual marching to the beat of a different drummer comes to chapel and in his way, he comes up to the front and says, <clears throat> I've been asked to speak on the topic of evangelism. Just do it. (laughs) And he walks off. Oh my goodness, all the students are just kind of sitting there stunned. But they remember it, right? Because too much, we just want to strategize and say, this is how we do it, this is what... No, 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 just do it. It's a good lesson for us. Discipleship is also a lifestyle. It's not so much what we know or how much time we spend in prayer or how often we show up at church. It's not the exercise of our spiritual gifts or our skill at sharing our faith or teaching the Bible. Uh-uh. You know what it is? It's found in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A disciple, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is trained, will be like his teacher, which means a disciple is a learner. That's every one of us. We're all to be disciples. And not only that, when you look at Matthew 28, 19, and 20, in turn, we're all supposed to be discipling others. Both and. So we're followers and leaders both at the same time. And that needs to be intentional. I think that's one of the words that came up that I, I wanted to stress and probably the most important one. Not only available... Uh, and being able to influence others, being authentic with humility and, with, and being approachable, but we need to be intentional about what we're doing. Many years ago, there was a small group of families that came together. There were couples and singles and young families and different backgrounds, brokenness, far from God, They experienced new life in Christ and the resulting transformation in their lives, meaning their lives changed from that point on. They were excited by the fact that there was hope. There was a God who loved them and they needed one another. They remembered painfully their past life and even at times suffered consequences because of it. Not everybody considered them to be so-called church people. But... Their love for God and their dedication to Him and passion for souls caused this small group of people to grow not only in their personal lives, but corporately as well. And in time, they called themselves Good News Bible Church. And today, after a growth process that includes the merging of two other congregations into this one, we're seeing what God is doing. Great things through us. 
Some of us, some of you here, stay-at-home moms. Some of you here, perhaps high school students. Some of you with full-time jobs, maybe working with unbelievers or working with believers, no matter what. It's a lifestyle of worship for us that includes evangelism and discipleship throughout. So we're living and breathing that worship before God. That's what's honoring to Him. This consistent practice as both individuals and corporately as a church, it serves as the framework to the answers needed by the world around us. In the moment the musicians are going to come and lead us in a song, it's a song of invitation, as you're going to hear. It's a song saying, anyone thirsty? You looking for something? And there's, when there's an invitation, there needs to be a response. There needs to be something in us that stirs and says, okay, I get it, I need that. And I would encourage you as you hear and sing this song, that the Lord will work in your hearts. There would be a change, realizing how necessary it is for us to be living a lifestyle of worship that involves both evangelism and discipleship. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father in heaven, thank you so much for teaching us from your word, and we realize how much there is for us to learn and how much more there is. And it's our desire to live a life of worship before you and one that honors you in every way, including being faithful in evangelism and discipleship. We look forward to how you're going to use us. We look forward to the transformation, continuing transformation in our own lives and what that means for us down the road. We look forward to what you're going to do through this church, Lord. This is your church. It's a privilege to be a part of this body of believers. And we want to be honoring you by living and having a lifestyle of worship that includes the evangelism and discipleship of all those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.